Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. John Phillips is a third-generation horseman who owns and operates Darby Dan Farm, originally founded by his grandfather. Darby Dan is among the iconic thoroughbred farms of the bluegrass region surrounding Lexington, Kentucky. John also manages the family-owned Phillips Racing Partnership. Thank you for being with us, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Tom. And I'd like to get started with an interesting article I saw about you that appears on the website of the Vanderbilt Law School. Uh, it's your alma mater. It talks about your decision to leave the practice of law because of a distaste and fatigue with the mad chase for billable hours that was accelerating at the time. So you agreed to take on the leadership of the family farm with the mission of guiding this genteel country gentleman's pastime into the world of global competition high financial stakes, huge risks of business failure. It sounds like a, the challenge is a big law, uh, but on horseback. Do they differ in important ways, or are they quite the same? Well, they differ in some ways, and they're similar in some ways. Um, <clears throat> they're different in the sense that in law, you know, you're worrying about somebody else's problem, trying to resolve somebody else's problem. With horses and the horse farm, they're your problems, and um, that makes it really different. And psychologically, for me, it was much more satisfying, and I think I love the law, but it was much more satisfying to look out and see tangible results of your efforts. That was fundamentally a difference. One, to me, was just more fulfilling. Having said that, the legal education was absolutely valuable and very much is a part of my process from day to day, thinking and how I define and look at problems and analyze problems. I have to thank my legal education and my 10 years of legal practice uh, for, I think, allowing us to apply those in a day-to-day -day world in, in a horse farm and uh, raising and, and rearing horses of the magnitude that we do. I was wondering if that grounding in law informs what you do now. Can you give me an example, perhaps, of how you uh, use what you learn about analysis or critical thinking? Well, I mean, you know, law, you start with facts and, and you find the issue and then you analyze that issue. And that's no different from any other problem that you face. I'm sure economists would have their approach to a problem as well. But we have... I mean, it is a global business now, as you noted, and we have constant uh, challenges to apply law to what we produce. Uh, the fact of the matter is we have syndicate agreements. They've become very sophisticated. Uh, when my grandfather did a syndicate agreement on Hail to Reason, uh, literally decades ago, it was a two-and-a-half-page document. Now a syndicate agreement for a stallion is 30 pages. And there's all kinds of nuances uh, within that document now. And the, the degree of sophistication within the industry has required the application of law so much that it uh, has been very really helpful not only in, in the stallion range, but in boarding contracts and sales relationships. Um, there's a lot, a lot at stake now. It's not that genteel practice that it used to be in my grandfather's world. It's really intense global competition. And you better protect your backside uh, very well, understanding the legal ramifications of what you do, because there's a lot at stake. 
Not only does Darby Dan have an extensive record of racing successes, a couple of Kentucky Derby winners, several grade one performers, Breeders' Cup winner, the farm also repeatedly has proven its success in breeding and the continued care of its retired racehorses, and, and we'll get into aftercare in just a minute. But has a guiding philosophy evolved that has contributed to this success? Just kind of looking back, uh, reflecting back on the family's success, not only in, in thoroughbred racing, which has been, you know, very, we've been very fortunate, but in all of our sports activities. And I, upon reflecting back about the opportunity to apply certain basic principles of life to not only thoroughbred horse racing, but as well, uh, we own the Pittsburgh Pirates for 35 years, and how that was out, these principles were applicable there. And they, and they basically distilled down to three concepts. And that was being able to work with people and respect people of any standing, passion for what you do. And that, that's basically a principle that if you really are passionate about something, that it's never work. It's not something you have to do or need to do. It's something you enjoy doing. So you can work very, very hard at it and still think it's extremely enjoyable. That's one of the differences, you know, that I had in law because that was work to me, even though it was satisfying. It wasn't, I wasn't thrilled to come through the door every morning, but I certainly get that thrill when I come onto the farm. And then, then I think you just need courage. Uh, that is, you need to not be afraid to fail and try things. I think if you apply those basic principles, uh, whether it's in horse racing or whether we implied it in baseball, and there's some great anecdotes in each of those instances that I could give you, but if you apply those basic principles of life, then you'll be, I think, surprised that uh, success can follow. I mean, it's hard to describe why you could have successful business or a successful racing of uh, thoroughbreds and as well baseball, as we did, we won three world championships. And so you kind of look, well, what was that? What are those basic themes? And I think really they, they are just uh, those three principles of people, passion, and courage. I'm tempted to ask you for one of those anecdotes. Is there one kind of nutshell size that you could give us? Well, yes. Um, we talked about the respect for people and people of any kind. And I think there's two really neat examples of that. Pittsburgh Pirates um, acquired the services of a young black Latino player from Puerto Rico who could barely speak English. And he was really a talent, but he was struggling. Uh, the family embraced him very much, and he became a dear friend of the family. And he ultimately, with that confidence and understanding the respect that he had from the organization and from the ownership, uh, flowered into one of the great baseball players of all time, and that was Roberto Clemente. Uh, when my uncle, and this is the second anecdote, when my uncle sold the Pirates, the family sold the Pirates in 1984, a reporter asked him um, about the sale. And he said, well, we've sold for just enough to pay for the debt on the team. And the reporter was a little bit incredulous. He said, you mean to tell me after 30 years, you haven't really made any money? And Uncle Dan, in a very classic way, said, you've missed the point entirely. For 30 years, we've had the best seat in the house. And that's, that was kind of our attitude is you, you go for it and, and uh, you enjoy the process, not necessarily the destination, but if you like the process because you're passionate about the process, 
then good things will happen in the end. And I think that's a couple of those experiences that we've had in the family that, uh, quite frankly, has just been wonderful. That's been very great. fortunate. That's a great story. It's all what you value, isn't it? It is. In uh, an article I read in Bud Horse, you talked about your reasons for joining the Water, Hay, and Oats Alliance, not an organization that I would call a household name. <laughs> First of all, what is that? And then if you could kind of share those reasons with us. You know, thoroughbred horse racing is challenged right now. This is, the society's values are different than they were in my parents' or my grandparents' age. Their attitudes are different. And horse racing is not one, not a sport to change quickly and easily. But it's a sport that if we're going to survive, we have to. There are some certain fundamental contexts that uh, require the sport of horse racing to change. Integrity of racing has always been one of them. And of course, as with human sports, um, the issue of, of doping, if you will, of uh, medicines that enhance performance have always been an issue, but it's gotten so much more sophisticated and it is so much more complicated now. And it also is so much more transparent than it ever has been before. That topic is obviously from from the Olympics uh, to everyday baseball has become a keynote, and it's no different in, in horse racing. So the Hay Oats and Water Alliance was essentially an idea to centralize the issue of uh, drug standards within the industry through a federal government. Right now, it's very hard for the industry to do much of anything because it has 30-some-odd jurisdictions that are all in control. They all have different penalties, they'll have different standards. Uh, and while we've tried for the last 20 years to have uniform medication, if you will, we've not been very successful. So this was an approach just to take that one issue and put it in the hands of an independent, sort of an independent regula uh, regulatory body, if you will, or judgmental body. And it's the same body that basically does the Olympics. And so we were asking uh, that that piece of legislation asks the states to yield essentially their control over that one particular issue for the purpose of uniformity, uniformity of uh, standards, testing, and uh, penalties. It is one of the underbellies of thoroughbred racing and has been for many years. The problem is I don't think we have the luxury uh, that we used to have. Uh, sports are changing radically, competition in sports, and quite frankly now, uh, sports betting it's going to be intense. And if you give the general public an excuse not to pursue your, their interest in your sport, they will take that and they will exit from the game. So that, that is one of them. Um, has that it, been happening? Yes. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is that in 2011, the uh, U.S. Jockey Club did research uh, with the McKenzie Group out of Atlanta, which is a national, nationally recognized mm -hmm. research company. And unfortunately, we're losing about 5% of our fan base a year. And that's too much. Uh, and that will lead us into obscurity if we, we let it. Now, there are a lot more reasons than the integrity issue. We have some, some things that are no longer acceptable to the public. Uh, one of them, and we'll get into this, is the aftercare of thoroughbred racehorses. Um, that is an extremely sensitive topic with uh, particularly millennials now. Um, but it's always been a sensitive topic. But more recently, um, it is 
the relationship between man and horse is just uh, different from what it was a century ago or 50 years ago. So the end of a thoroughbred racehorse's career, what happens to him next is, you know, it's a factor for people not following the, the sport, and it's a factor for people who exit the sport. So that has to be addressed. And then there are other things uh, that go down to the use of the stick. You know, that has just an adverse impression. And it's a little different than it was 100 years ago because— And what does that mean, the use of the stick? The, the, the whip. The whip. The whip. And there are those kinds of issues. I mean, people don't ride horses like they used to. Now, they're not familiar with our, uh, our relationship with the horse. And so those kinds of sensitivities need to be addressed and need to be addressed directly if the sport is going to survive. I mean, there are a lot of good qualities still there. I mean, it's an elegant uh, sport. It's beautiful interaction between man and animal. I love it intensely. It has provided all of this environment that is around Lexington, Kentucky that's breathtaking. But uh, if we don't have the sport, the underpinnings of all of those activities, all of that employment, all of the things which, quite frankly, I'm able to enjoy and the 45 people that work on Darby Dan Farm are able to enjoy, they all rely on a viable sport. And so those kinds of issues are a matter, from my perspective, of uh, protecting the sport. Let's come back to aftercare in just a minute because okay. I know that's really important to you. I just want to finish up on... Uh, the search for a national uniform medication policy. There is legislation that's been kind of hanging out in the halls of Congress for a number of years now. It has not been successful so far, but it would establish a central authority that would create and implement a policy. Does it have a future? Do you think that eventually you'll see passage? The operative word might be eventually there. Um, it is a very controversial piece of legislation, and it's, it's known as the Racing Integrity Act. Mm -hmm. The reason it's controversial is because, it, in part, it's a turf war. Uh, in part, it deals with the issue of Lasix, which is a highly controversial medication. Um, it is a good medication in, in the sense that it's effective for its intended use. Um, that intended use probably applies to about 16% of thoroughbreds. It is a diuretic, essentially, for, that inhibits pulmonary edemas. But 99% uh, of the horses run on it. And because it is a diuretic, the horse that's competing will lose, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 16 pounds. And I've heard different figures on that. But nobody wants to run without it because some of the horses run with it, and therefore it's perceived as an advantage. And unfortunately, the, the Racing Integrity Act has gotten into that. Now, that issue of Lasix got pulled into it uh, because of some political considerations. But whether the Racing in Integrity Act has a future, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm pushing for it. I'm hoping for it. I know the U.S. Jockey Club does. But there are important groups that have problems with it um, because it's also handing over power and authority to an independent group that some people don't really want it to yield that power away. And it's so, kind of expanded into standard bread and, and quarter horse racing as well, right, in, in its latest iteration? Well, it, it, it has had multiple iterations. Where it's going uh -huh. to come down, I have n no idea. And I can tell you that that the thoroughbred industry has a lot of different considerations than, for example, the quarter horse industry does. Uh, the quarter horse industry is 
well, they produce three times the number of horses, over three times the number of horses the thoroughbred industry does in the course of a year. So their approach to um, handling those kinds of issues is, is very different. And I suspect at the end of the day, there will be no movement if uh, it is expanded beyond the thoroughbreds. So we'll, we'll just have to see where it goes. I know, uh, you know our congressman here, Andy Barr, has been very working very hard at it. But interestingly enough, you know, Churchill Downs is not, they're not very enthusiastic about hmm. it. Mr. Stronick, on the other hand, is. Interesting. Uh, so it's, it's quite controversial, and uh, it will take some work to get it passed. We're almost out of time, and I want to be sure to come back to something that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is aftercare. If we could kind of wrap up on that subject, um, I would say that you're an advocate for, uh, for this issue. Let's pick up wh uh, where we left off before we got into the implementation of the uh, Congressional Act. What is the need and what's going on that, that drives it? Well, that 2011 study that I referred to, that indicated a real sensitivity on, uh, by the public regarding uh, what happens to the horse after his racing years are done. The thoroughbred industry, unlike some other breeds, by the way, has been very aggressive about trying to address that. And um, it's not really, there are a lot of people that look at that as a moral issue. A lot of people say, you know, that the, the horse uh, is a companion animal and therefore has a higher standing than, say, mere livestock. But that really is an argument that I think, or a discussion that we don't really need to have because we do know that our customer right now or our future customer uh, is very sensitive about what happens to the horse after his racing years are done. So we formulated uh, 19, or 2011 the Thoroughbred uh, Aftercare Alliance and the TAA was uh, provided seed money by the Jockey Club, Keeneland, and um, the Breeders' Cup to basically give accreditation to orga organizations and facilities that were caring for or retraining uh, thoroughbred racehorses. And you ha it's not just retirement, it's the retraining process. And we, in really six years, have, have done, I think, a fairly remarkable job in getting that to the forefront, to the point that I think the industry is no longer questioning the, the need of uh, aftercare, but rather how we can attack it and expand it so that really convinces the public that uh, the thoroughbred, is, thoroughbred industry is serious about aftercare. And we have now uh, 64 accredited organizations and 165 facilities that either have retired or are retraining. And that has translated into literally thousands of retired horses and thousands more that have been uh, retrained into secondary careers. It's extremely important. And we're doing a lot of research we're expanding our, our funding base. We generate about $4 million annually through the TAA. Um, there are millions more that the individual organizations raise themselves. And we have a number of initiatives. The Stronach Group has been very helpful. They've created, uh, along with Amtote, a computer application in their betting machines that allows horse players to contribute to the TAA. We just finished a... Uh, assessment of Santa Anita, and that plant con is going to contribute about $10,000 every quarter to the TAA. Interestingly enough, that's being distributed to now that particular application uh, is being distributed to all Astronic racetracks. 
plus Del Mar, plus the uh, NYRA two or three weeks ago just announced that they're going to have that app as well. The Jockey Club has increased uh, or created a fee this year uh, for the report on mare's bread, which basically will require stud managers to pay $35 for every mare that is bred to their stallion. Well, that's about 30-some-odd thousand horses. All of that money, the bulk of that money, will go to the TAA. So as well, and there's a number of issues. I could probably talk it, for hours about it. But do, does it all boil down to these horses having a, a, a really great retirement life? Well, two things uh, on that. Yes and, yes and no. Um, the Australians were under tremendous pressure, and I'm going to use them as where I'd like the, the thoroughbred industry to end up in the United States. They were under tremendous pressure from their public as well. They created a policy, a strategy, if you will, called the first exit from racing strategy. And that basically says, look, racing is responsible for that horse uh, when he exits from the racetrack. But it doesn't say that racing is responsible for that horse for the rest of his life. And it's just like the strategy of a local humane society. You go to a, adopt a dog or something, you got to you know, pay for shots, you got to make sure that the cat is neutered or whatever. I mean, it's a fairly elaborate process. It's just not, here's your cat. Uh, thoroughbred racing is going to do the same thing, and they do that in Australia. So when a horse exits from racing in Australia, they can tell you where that horse is, when it exited, and importantly, who is responsible for that horse's welfare upon exit. And that window that they monitor and basically guarantee that soft landing is about a two-year window. And that's what we need to get to the United States because that that is practical and that is fair. Uh, beyond that, if little Susie, you know, leaves for college and, and they decided that her thoroughbred, you know, is 18 and arthritic, and if that horse ends up in bad circumstances, that's not really racing's fault. That's not good on Susie from my perspective, but that's not really racing's responsibility at that point. But we've got to get to the point where, you know, when that horse leaves racing, wherever that horse leaves in the United States, that uh, it is assured of a what I call a soft landing. And that's where we want to go. So that's an important point. And I think that will allow uh, the thoroughbred industry to manage that issue of unwanted horses that are in retirement or being retired from the racetrack. John, we have about 30 seconds, and this is one of those think-fast questions because I know you could probably go on for a long time in answering it, but what would you say, if you had to distill it down, do you most enjoy about this thoroughbred business? God, I enjoy every day. <laughs> I really do. I don't know. I love animals, and, and I love horses, and uh, to me, it's a holistic thing. So let me just say this. To me, it's living art. And I'm passionate about it. And because I love it, uh, that, that process of whether it's the equine art or the, the landscape art, to me, it's art. And that gives a quality of life to me that for which I just believe I'm just inherently very blessed because I just love it. John Phillips of Darby Dan Farm and the Phillips Racing Partnership in Lexington. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash agfuture.